Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. <music> listeners. I just finished an interview with Dr. Tracy Neal Lavelle uh, of his fascinating book, The Catholic Calumet, Colonial Conversions in French and Indian North America. Uh, This is an absolutely fascinating book to me. Uh, It's dealing with mostly French missionaries, mostly Jesuits, in the 17th and 18th century in New France and their relationship to the Native Americans there. And it's focusing on this issue of conversion. And uh, what's several things interesting about this book, one is that uh, while uh, the author, Tracy, is a specialist in uh, history, he's a historian, he also had training in the sciences and in anthropology. And especially that latter training really shows through. This book, uh, even though it's, it's a history book, it brings things alive. It feels like you're reading something about things that are going on right now. And a lot of that is the skill of Tracy as, as, a, as a historian, as an anthropologist, as a writer, and also the fact that he's using these really wonderful sources, uh, the, the Jesuit sources uh, that describe these native peoples. So that's really interesting. And what I find, especially as someone who studies um, uh, focusing mostly on Korean Catholicism and the interaction between the French missionaries and the Koreans there, is how well he shows these two group of people together and their own interactions. It's, it's really, um, you get a real sense of the personalities, of the cultures, of the religious beliefs of both the Native Americans and the French missionaries and how they're, they're interacting with each other. And one of uh, Tracy's goals here was to show the the agency that these people had in shaping their relationships on both sides, both the, the Native Americans and the French Jesuits. And that also comes through very strongly. So um, I think this is a really important book. I think it's something a lot of people will, will get um, will get a lot out of. So I hope that you will will listen to it and enjoy the interview. Thanks. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in Christian Studies. I'm Dr. Franklin Rausch of Lander University, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Tracy Lavelle about his new book, The Catholic Calumet. Tracy, welcome to the show. Thank you very much uh, for having me. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Well, thank you for joining us. We're, great. We're really happy to have you here. So I wonder if you could start the interview by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, um, I'll tell you a little bit about where I am right now. Um, I am Associate Dean in uh, the College of Arts and Sciences at Creighton University, uh, for humanities and fine arts. Been in the dean's office uh, only since last summer. Before that, I was in uh, the Department of History. I'm an associate uh, professor of history uh, at Creighton, and I was uh, chair of the department. Um, I'm also director of the Digital Humanities Initiative at Creighton and interim director of Native American Studies. Um, that's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. Uh, I've ended up doing a lot of administrative work. Um, I've been at Creighton for 11 years. For those people who don't know, Creighton is a Jesuit Catholic um, in the College of Arts and Sciences, a liberal arts institution uh, in Omaha, Nebraska. I've been here about 11 years. Um, before that, I was uh, at Smith College for a couple years as a postdoc. Uh, I taught there at this wonderful uh Women's uh, Liberal Arts College in Western Massachusetts, um, and I uh, did my PhD work in history at uh, uh, Arizona State University. And I remember we had, when we spoke earlier, you had mentioned that you didn't start off in history. No, it uh, took a while to get there. I had planned uh, most of my life. I grew up in West Texas. I um, was I always intended to be a scientist um, and uh, prepared to do that all the way into college. And uh, I went to Dartmouth College um, and was really lucky there. Um, I guess in the best liberal arts tradition, you know, I had a chance to study a lot of different things, which was something I really wanted. And um, 
uh, I happened to start taking uh, courses in anthropology and then eventually in, in Native American studies. And there's a, a well-established Native American studies program and some really amazing scholars um, there that I had the um, good fortune to study with, people like Colin Calloway, um, Michael Green, who's now at North Carolina, um, and Sergey Khan, who's an uh, anthropologist. And that really, um, I think I reconnected with my deep interest in the history of North America, um, something that I had always had, but um, had never really considered, you know, a, a, I guess a career option. Um, uh, so it was, it was basically uh, just a, um, an opportunity um, that I took. Oh no, that's really great. And it's, I mean, especially that your anthropology background really shows up in the the book. I and mean, for our readers, one thing that's really neat is even though this book is focusing on the uh, later 17th and the 18th centuries, there's really a lot of ethnographic detail. It almost reads like it was written about something that was going on today. Yeah, um, you know, I so my degree at Dartmouth was in anthropology uh, and Native American studies, and so I had this kind of anguished decision when I just uh, wanted to go to graduate school. I uh, spent a lot of time thinking about whether I wanted to study anthropology or, or history and ultimately decided uh, on history because I think I just, I believe that's just the way my, my brain works. I, I tend to think historically the questions that I kept asking again and again were historical in nature. Um, so that's what I ended up doing. But I still have an interest in anthropology. Um, I read a lot of anthropology, um, and it's actually essential um, to understanding the source material I used. Um, if if one tried to approach it just as a the, the source material, just as as um, you know, uh, documents um, out of out of their ethnographic. Uh, context, you would be missing um, missing a great deal. Right. Well, like I said, this this book really does a wonderful job of getting a lot of detail. So, could you tell me a little bit then how what attracted you to Native American? Um, well, that's an interesting story. I, mean, I think um, there were a couple of things. I mean, first of all, I, like I said, I grew up in West Texas in the Panhandle, and I was always aware of the fact that I lived in Comanche country. And, um, you know, there were historic sites around and, and um, it was just, an, I guess, an awareness I had. And then um, on one side of my family is from uh, northeastern Wyoming and western South Dakota, which is, um, you know, very close to Lakota reservations and, um, uh, you know, the Black Hills and um so it's Cheyenne and Lakota country and a lot of other native peoples around there. Um, and there was evidence of, you know, native uh, presence all around, but including on um, the ranch that my mother grew up on. And then um, while I was at Dartmouth, because I had started uh, taking these classes, I actually took a couple of years off um, to travel and work and, um, I spent uh, a lot of time uh, traveling around the United States and Canada and came, I guess, to appreciate uh, the much longer, deeper history of this continent um, and also how little I knew about it. Um, and that uh, gave me a lot of inspiration to, to try to understand the, you know, the longer human history of, of North America. Right, right. That really. Um, so, how then did you make the shift? Though you said you, you're studying Comanche country, but these are not Comanche; these are Illinois and, and other Native American groups. Yeah, that um, was because I saw a particular opportunity with um, wonderful sources, and um, as you know, that one of the main sets of sources that I use in the book. <clears throat> are the Jesuit relations, which are very well known uh, because they were published at the turn of the 20th century um, in 
you know, compiled and edited by Ruben Goldthwaites. Um, and it's 70 plus volumes of material um, in the original language, mostly French and then uh, in the English translation. And um, it's a set of sources that uh, scholars have used for a very long time. Um, and I just remember um, being introduced to them uh, through some reading I was doing in an anthropology class um, on uh, native Christianity and being in the library and looking at this, you know, I mean, you've cut, you're like in the stacks and you're looking at 70 volumes of material and you just pick one off the shelf and look in it and there's just amazing uh, stories and amazing material in there. So um, I, when I ended up in graduate school and I was thinking, well, what do I want to write about um, here? Uh, that was at the top of my list. I had some other ideas, but it ended up at the top of my list, mainly because I saw some opportunities to, um, you know, to do some things in, 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 in this field. But yeah, those are really fascinating sources. And I, I like, um, you pick out a really good one in the introduction of your book, this meeting of the, um, the, in 1730, the Illinois with the French in the New Orleans. Yes. Well, it took me a long time to settle on that story. Um, just about the last thing I did was come up with the title of the book, The Catholic Calumet, and um, the first story explains where that comes from, and it also says something about the intervention I was trying to, to make here um, and the conversation I, was, I, I wanted to have with other scholars and with readers, and that is, um, so in 1730, this group of Illinois Indians um, led by two men named Chicago and uh, Mamantuensa uh, traveled down from uh, Illinois uh, to meet with the governor in New Orleans. Um, and when they get there, they stay for a while, and the people in New Orleans are really amazed because they are um, uh, they appear to be devout, practicing Catholics. So they, uh, in this uh, episode that really astonished people, they... Um, participated in a Gregorian chant with some Ursuline nuns where the nuns were chanting in Latin and the Illinois were chanting um, in, you know, alternating in their own language and uh, they would go to mass and stuff like that. But one of the things they did as part of the tradition of gift exchange, which is very important to diplomacy. Um, they presented two calumets or ceremonial pipes. Uh, people have seen these pipes. I think they, they know what they look like. They're long-stemmed pipes with a, a stone, carved stone bowl um, made out of pipe stone. And um, they presented two of them to the French governor, one uh, to signify the alliance, the diplomatic relationship, uh, but another to uh, symbolize their attachment to Catholicism. Um, and I call that one the Catholic Calumet. So the story is really about how something like that happens, um, how you have this native object or native practices that are transformed uh, by this encounter. Uh, so this Calumet, this pipe, carried new meaning uh, that came out of this encounter. And so I'm, al I'm also, on the other side, interested in how the French um, changed as well, about how they learned to uh, participate in these ceremonies and, um, you know, in some cases, accept the kind of ambiguous meaning that came out of, out of these encounters. Yeah, that's one thing I really got a lot out of. Um got a lot of out of your book was this idea of a mutual conversion that it wasn't just the native americans in a sense becoming catholic but in a sense the french also had to become native yes i think um i had been frustrated in looking at a lot of material where um on on the native side if you look at native christianity indigenous christianity um on the one hand people, uh, scholars, asking the question, were these conversions real? Um, you know, were these people really Catholic or Christian? And I think that's the wrong question to ask, um, uh, because the fact is there were changes, and um, um, 
I don't think that, you know, in my definition of conversion, which I spend a lot of time on, um, I don't think conversion represents, uh, you know, a transformation from one settled state to another. I talk about conversion as a cross-cultural practice. It's a, it's a set of practices. It's a, it's not, um, a state of being. And, um, on the other hand, sometimes people have criticized uh, Native Christians for for being inauthentic Indians, you know, for turning their back on Native uh, on their Native communities and Native cultures. And you can see that the process of conversion in these uh, in these places and times that is not at all what happened. But on the other hand, you know, the missionaries in particular that I focus on, the Jesuit French Jesuits, they um, underwent uh, a lot of transformative experiences themselves, and this is intentional. They were there in part uh, as uh, a project of self-transformation, uh, a kind of self-conversion. Um, they were having a, a spiritual experience too, so I try to document that. Right. No, that and that was really fascinating, and I that was one thing I also appreciated was that you you spent a great, good deal of time talking about the spiritual exercises. Yes. You know, the spiritual exercises are the uh, the foundation for Jesuit spirituality. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola, the founder of the Jesuits, um, uh, before he started, the, the Jesuits were founded in 1540 officially um, uh, by the Pope. Um, but before that, um, Ignatius, who was from Spain, was traveling and was in the midst of a spiritual crisis um, and um, spent uh, a lot of time meditating and praying and, and thinking um, in a cave and uh, developed the spiritual exercises, which are um, basically a, it's a retreat guide, um, but it, gives the found, it provides the foundation for Jesuit, for, for Jesuit spirituality. So all Jesuits in formation um, go through you know, a 30-day um, silent uh, retreat with the Jesuit relations, but they've also, they, you know, anyone can take a, uh, can do a version of Jesuit relations. So they'll do eight day retreats for, for lay people. They've done that, you know, since the beginning of the order. Um, but yeah, that provides the orientation for what it means to, uh, give yourself over to God. So to empty yourself of your own will, so that you make space for um, for God's will. Right, and I, I really appreciate that you got that in there, because I, I do a lot of work with um, Catholicism in Korea, and, and a lot of times the missionaries are kind of ignored, and their kind of um, spirituality is, is down, can be read just as representatives of their nation. So instead of being French, or I'm sorry, instead of being Catholic missionaries, the emphasis tends to be, well, they were French. <laughs> yeah, and that's common. I, you know, one of the things that I was trying to uh, argue against is this view that the missionaries were nothing more than instruments of, of uh, colonialism. And it's not that I deny. I don't deny that they were um, uh, part of a, of a uh, you know, aggressive colonial apparatus and that they were, um, I document many cases, where they do things that um, um, are highly destructive to native cultures and, and native people. Um, so I don't deny that. But my point is that everyone who is involved in this, you know, if you, I, I want to see them all as, as, um, as human, as, as agents in, in this history and um, really understand uh, the range of experiences that people had here. So that means treating the missionaries not just as kind of faceless um, representatives of empire, but as uh, individuals with um, uh, engaged in, in, in uh, spiritual programs, right? Right. Well, I wonder if then if you could, um, to kind of finish up the introduction, you could tell us about this meeting of, of these different kind of spiritualities and their mixing in this wonderful story you, you relate in the book about Joseph, the Native American named Joseph, when he attends Mass. Yeah, there's a, um, a man named Joseph who lived west of uh, Lake Michigan and uh, in the 17th century. And um, 
he had showed a lot of interest in Catholicism, and, and one of uh, the missionaries uh, recounts uh, this really spectacular event where um, he didn't get a lot of attention. He wasn't really having a lot of success, but th- this man, Joseph, was really interested. <clears throat> Joseph attends a mass that the um, missionary is saying, and at the moment where he... Um, consecrates the host, elevates the host, um, you know, a key moment in the Mass. Um, the man, Joseph, falls to the ground, um, you know, paralyzed, um, uh, appears even to possibly be dead. Um, and uh, then um, he comes back and, um, you know, from his faint or whatever it is, and uh, asks for some very simple kind of rosary prayers and things like that and um, becomes uh, uh, an ally of the of the missionaries. Now, um, I read this and I think, okay, you know, this is really interesting. And he sees it as his greatest success, you know, and uh, in that uh, period. Um, but it, <laughs> I noticed that it sounds really familiar because if you look at some other sources, uh, we have accounts of, uh, native people in the area that um, on certain occasions in the year would have these big ceremonies where native ceremonialists, healers, uh, spiritual leaders would gather. Um, they would build a wooden um, structure, you know, just like uh, the missionaries would build a wooden structure. They would have a ceremony, and at key moments, the uh, people would be would be made to. Uh, to fall down, uh, to become unconscious, right? And as a manifestation of their uh, power, they would bring them back. Um, and so I look at this and I suggest that, you know, we don't know exactly what's going on here. I mean, we can't read their minds. But there's at least the possibility, first of all, that there's some continuity in, in the practice between Native tradition and the what was happening with this in, in the Catholic mass there, but um, that perhaps Joseph was a kind of a spiritual apprentice to the missionary who was, int- you know, he was interested in the missionaries spiritual power in a way that reflected his, um, you know, his cultural background. No, that was excellent. I, that's the kind of thing, um, especially I want to just mention this for our readers um, or I should say our listeners. who I hope we'll be reading this book. great for classroom use um, that, because they really illustrate these these themes uh, that Tracy highly recommend you have a look at this book so I wonder if you could continue by bringing us into to chapter two yeah chapter two is is, uh, is called histories origins and experience and there I um, want to tell uh, the multiple stories of origin. So I focus on the Ottawa's um, uh, in the the Great Lakes, and um, I uh, share one version of their origin story, um, the origin of the world, and um, I contrast that with um, the origins of the Jesuits. And the reason that I uh, did that, um, so there's two things. I wanted to give the, the kind of origin story to... Uh, of both um, a, a native community and the Jesuits to make the point that um, there was this kind of strong uh, mythological uh, background that um, shaped the experience that people had in these encounters, both Jesuit and um, native. So for the Jesuits, for example, they looked back at their heroic founders, um, Ignatius of Loyola and um, the first great Jesuit missionary, Francis Xavier, who were both um, uh, elevated to sainthood in the early 17th century. So they, you know, these were like towering, you know, spiritual figures uh, for Jesuits, just in the same, in, in, I shouldn't say in the same way, but in a similar way that there were, um, you know, heroic mythological figures in native communities. Then I also want to make the point that I pick up the story in, in the middle of the 17th century after the Jesuits and, and native peoples in some places had been um, in contact for some time. 
And that immediate past history also had a really big impact on the way um, the way things unfolded in the Great Lakes and the Mississippi Valley. Right. Excellent. Yeah, I like this kind of journey through time we're taking because it's it's so easy to get kind of lost and forget that these people had a history. Like if we focus just on a few years, right, that we need to consider. And I like that kind of temporality you got there, especially the Jesuit connection um, with the. Um, with their founders. Um, I thought that was really, I think one of the priests, right, you looked at was constantly invoking um, St. Francis Xavier. Yes, it was very common. I, I used this one. There's a, a missionary named Claude Alloway who was very prominent in the 17th century in, in the Great Lakes and traveled um, kind of incessantly um, founding missions. And um, he, uh, one of the, he left a, a manuscript that was a kind of set of personal writings, and, and he invokes uh, Xavier often, um, but a lot of missionaries did. You know, so if you look at their material, they're constantly talking about Xavier in particular as a model, um, because he was the, you know, the first missionary. They referenced the spiritual. Um, um, uh, the spiritual exercises um, a lot, um, uh, and um, then they're also aware of of and and thinking about and comparing themselves to the martyrs, um, the the North American martyrs, the people, um, the Joseph martyrs who were um, elevated to sainthood in uh, the early 20th century, um, who were part of the the mission to the Hurons and the Iroquois in the 1630s and 1640s. So having told us a little bit about the, um, the, the historical background for the, the Jesuits, could you tell us a little bit about the Native Americans? And I'm, I'm thinking particularly about the, the, this myth about the muskrat. Yeah, you know, it, it's, uh, I share this version of, of an Ottawa origin uh, story, and it's a classic birth diver uh, story, uh, which is very common. Um, uh, in North America and elsewhere, actually. So uh, this uh, trickster figure, this <clears throat> uh, called the Great Hare or Mishabu or Nanabojo, uh, depending on um, you know how you translate or where you are. Um, he's on a raft, um, surrounded. You know, the earth is water, uh, but there really is no earth yet. It's just water. He's on a raft with animals. And uh, in sequence, animals dive down to try to um, bring back some earth, so he can, so the great hare can make um, earth for you know make earth for them to live on and make a home for everyone. And um, no, none of the animals are able to do it. Finally, on the fourth try, uh, the muskrat gives it a shot, dives down, he disappears for a whole day, comes back, he's basically unconscious. They um, um they look in his his paws and um, they open the last one and there's a grain of sand and the great hare takes that grain of sand and starts to spread it around and creates the earth um, and makes a place for people, uh, for all beings, human and other than human beings to live. And in fact, you know, it's suggested that that creation is ongoing. It's not a, um, a, a finished product. So now you've taken us then, uh, in a sense, that's a transition from time into space, which is what you're dealing with in Chapter 3. Yeah, three. this chapter, I think, uh, a couple of interesting things about it. I think it's the one that has interested people the most. I published it uh, in 2004 as a separate article in a different version in American Quarterly. And um, it's also the oldest part of the book. It's the first piece that I wrote, and um, what I am trying to, the points that I'm trying to make there are that um, uh, both missionaries and native peoples um, viewed the landscape in moral terms, um, so the landscape held um, moral lessons. It was a, a landscape, of, uh, it was spiritual in nature, and it contained stories, um, so these places, you know, the stories that, uh, that the Ottawa's told, they could point to specific places and features in the landscape, you know, where these 
these things happened and evidence of them happening. Um, you know, for the missionaries, this was um, a relatively frightening place. It was a place that was outside the bounds of Christian civilization. So the landscape was read in moral terms. Um, so when you bring people together, um, in this case, the missionaries want to transform it, right? They want to make uh, the landscape itself, and not just the people, uh, Christian, to bring it into that into the boundaries of Christian civilization, into the kingdom of God. Um, that creates conflict um, uh, because native peoples, even um, uh, those who adopted Christianity, might have a different vision of the the meaning of the landscape. And so I conclude by saying that um, uh, that what you end up with are these uh, uh, colonial um, geographies, right? They're uh, geographies that um, represent um, that don't represent the ideal of either native communities or Jesuits. It's something that comes out of this kind of ambiguous um, uh, mix of people and, and uh, actions. Well, I think one area that, that that really shows is your decision to talk about these the planting of crosses. Yeah, this. I mean, it seems very simple. This is this happened all the time. So, it you know, in ceremonies of possession, uh, Europeans it was not unusual for Europeans to plant a cross as in the, as a a claim to to uh, a particular. Um, um, place, but I, it actually was more than that. I mean, um, if you look at what the Jesuit missionaries were doing here, they were actually trying to physically transform the space. I mean, they talked about it in these terms, right? So, by the, in the process of the physical transformation, replacing native spiritual objects with um, with Catholic spiritual objects, whether it was a cross or a chapel they believed that they were pushing back uh, the influence of, of Satan um, and, um, and extending the influence of, of, of Christ, I mean, in a, in a physical sense. Um, and, I, you know, so it seems simple, but it's a, a point that I think sometimes um, has been missed or underemphasized. Well, I think also, I think you're right there. And one thing I think was also interesting was then how sometimes the natives interacted with these crosses. Yeah, um, you know, this is where it's a good example of where I um, the missionaries could be destructive. I tell a story of, of a missionary that finds a, a rock um, that is carved into the figure of uh, what's human um, and is painted and, and everything, and, and um, he knocks it over and rolls it in the water. You know, it, it, it's a, a, a site where people made um, offerings, right? So who knows how long it had been there or what it meant. Um, that's all I know about it is that he destroyed the site. Um, well, uh, you know, in the contest over over these spaces, uh uh, Indians could um, respond uh, with similar kinds of um, uh, violence. Uh, so I tell a story where um, a missionary dies and some um, uh, native uh, healers um, have a celebration and dance around uh, the cross in the middle of the village and then they destroy it. They break it apart um, and claim that they're... Um, spiritual power is, is, is supreme in, in that moment. They've defeated a spiritual enemy. Right. Right. So, yeah, it's, it's interesting that these, these symbols are they're still kind of contested, and they show how there's these different perceptions um, of the space and of the sacred. And that kind of, this issue of perceptions brings us into your fourth chapter, uh, which I, I love the title for this, uh, Perceptions, semicolon, Human, and other than human nature. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, it's very important, I think, um, that to understand that in these encounters, both uh, the French missionaries and Native peoples viewed um, the people that they were encountering as other. Okay, so it's it it's very easy for us to 
to talk about because there's you know so much material on it. Um, if you read the Jesuit relations or other sources, you see uh, the missionaries uh, describing as much ethnographic detail as as there is in this material. They they understand native peoples as others. They um, um, as uh, not fully human because they um, have either don't have access um, uh, to the teachings of Jesus Christ or they um, they don't behave properly um, or they are associated with um, um, with negative um, things you know their societies aren't organized properly etc cetera, etc cetera. but um, we have to recall as well I think to understand this that Indians saw the missionaries as others they didn't act properly either they didn't know what they were doing they they didn't behave properly they were strange foreign so this is a chapter about how um, native people and Jesuits and understood the other and through ritual and um, tried to bring the other into some sort of meaningful relationship so for uh, native peoples, that meant uh, creating uh, some sort of kinship connections um, with um, uh, they couldn't uh, they couldn't have a real relationship with them if they could not fit them into their society in some sort of um, kinship relation. So uh, for the missionaries, because they couldn't get married, right? Uh, it was a fictive uh, kind of kinship. Um, that was based on gift exchange and the way people behaved. Um, uh, for missionaries, uh, to uh, the ideal was conversion, right? Was to get uh, native peoples to um, convert to Christianity and alter their behavior in ways that reflected their um, vision of Christian civilization. So that's what that is, that's what that chapter is about. Well, I, I thought it was really interesting, too, how you, you begin this chapter showing how these relationships could also change. You, you, you begin with talking, uh, having Father Aloy having two different meetings at the same village that are very different. Right. So he shows up and he thinks, so this is an important concept, uh, Algonquian-speaking peoples have this concept of, of Manitou, which uh, means, it has multiple meanings. Um, you can translate it as spirit power, um, medicine, um, a, a lot of different, uh, it's a very complex uh, spiritual concept. Uh, the missionaries tended to um, translate it as spirit, like as it as, as the thing, and less as, as the, um, the power that, came, that emerged out of a relationship. So they kind of had sometimes a mis- slight misunderstanding of what it was. So Alloway, they called Alloway Manitou, and he thought that he was being referred to as a kind of spirit being or God, and so he thinks everything is going great, and um, really, uh, these people were being careful because they recognized him as someone who was different, a different kind of being, who obviously held uh, some amount of power, and so they were being respectful. So they were being careful and respectful. He thinks everything's going great. He comes back the next year, and everyone's mad at him and they're, they're, uh, they're unhappy and he doesn't get the same reception. He's like, what, you know, what's going on here? And, um, it turns out that in the meantime, they had had some other, um, uh, experiences with French, probably traders, and they were very unhappy. And the, the point that I make here is that the French, uh, if they misbehaved, right? So there were certain expectations for behavior that made it possible to have an authentic relationship. And if, if, if the French did not behave properly, including the missionaries, then they could be pushed to the margins of Native society very quickly. Well, I liked how you described also the, the perception of each other in their meeting as, uh, I believe it was hopeful and cautious. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, they both wanted something, uh, from the other, uh, but it was difficult. It was hard to understand. I don't. I think it's hard. It's it's difficult for us to imagine how um, kind of I think even frightening uh, these meetings could be. Like the uncertainty, the ambiguity, the um, 
and how cautious you would want to be. I mean, it was probably one of the most interesting things about doing the project was to try to imagine this. Right. And I think that, right, that, that kind of concern, um, it really comes through also in this, this next chapter of in translations, because now it's, you've got the, they're relating with each other. They're trying to figure out how to perceive each other. Now they're trying to figure out how to talk to each other. Yeah. And this was, I, I think, in my view, is probably the most um, interesting and probably the most important uh, contribution that the book makes and an innovation, if you will. Because what I did in that chapter was I took, uh, there are some surviving um, linguistic manuscripts produced by the Jesuits in that period in the 17th and 18th centuries. Um, some dictionaries, prayer manuals, um, and other uh, documents that provide uh, translations back and forth, tens of thousands of translations back and forth between French and, and um, in this case, uh, the Miami, Illinois language. And so I studied uh, three um, uh, Christian um, uh, prayers, um, or, uh, yeah, I'll just call them prayers, so the Apostles' Creed, um, the Our Father, and the Hail Mary, and uh, two versions of the Apostles' Creed. And I translated them from uh, Miami, Illinois, uh, into French, and then into English to see what they <laughs> actually said. Um, and there are some pretty amazing things that you find in these, in these um, translations. Right. Uh, yeah, I really, um, I mean, I enjoyed the whole book, but this, because I, I have to work in Korean and, and Chinese and to a certain lesser extent Japanese, I'm fascinated by this issue of translation, how difficult it is um, to say things because they don't, you know, it, it, one of my favorites in Korean, they don't differentiate between mind and uh, heart. So it gets tricky when you when you have to translate those terms in English because we do. And so I, I just can't imagine how difficult it was to try and to uh, not only communicate, but to translate very complex theological ideas. Yeah, and you can see the struggle, right? You can see it happening when you look at these translations. So a couple of things that I focus on, um, and I've published, this is a separate article in, in Church History, and um, the article is called Bad Things and Good Hearts. And um, I, you know... You probably understand this. Translating this really complex uh, concept of sin, right? Sin is not an easy thing. Uh, it has right. a, a lot of uh, pieces to it. It has a long uh, history um, in Christianity, and um, it was not there was no term for sin uh, in these languages. So, um, figuring out how to translate that. Uh, was a constant problem. Missionaries complained about it. It's like they would say, these people, they don't understand sin. So they chose a term in the Miami, Illinois language, Marawaki, which means bad things, um, which is a much broader term because um, it can apply uh, not just to you know stains on the spirit uh, or spiritual uh, problems, but um, you know, and the whole range of, of uh, of things that can can go wrong in a person's life, but it's uh, the another concept that's very difficult to translate is grace. I mean, if if sin is difficult, I think grace might even be more <laughs> challenging right. to translate. Um, there's obviously no word for that, so they chose uh, the idea of a good heart, and this actually was quite a, a brilliant idea because they had figured out um, that there was this whole language of the heart in Miami, Illinois um, that had to do with uh, the way a person uh, maintained uh, wellness and balance um, uh, and there's a lot of language related to this so uh, one of the examples I give is um, you know that uh, in the the Ave Maria, um, uh, you know, instead of Hail Mary, full of grace, um, it's uh, Rejoice in Mary, the Master of all good hearts. 
is the translation in Mayan Illinois. So Mary uh, is someone that uh, a, a native Christian could call on to restore uh, balance um, in um, in their heart. So if, if things were out of balance, if they were sick, um, and I don't mean just physically ill, but if they had, um, you know, problems that were considered, of, you know, of a spiritual nature, Mary was the master of all good hearts and was therefore someone to call on for uh, for restoration and uh, of of one's physical and spiritual well being. Right. Yeah, I thought that was really really neat how they there was that that struggle to to do that, and I was really struck with how things changed with the creed. Um, I mean, and you you really focus on this because of course the creed in, in Latin is credo, um, I believe. But what does it become when the, they translate it? When they translate it, uh, they use the term nitara mitawa which means it's a better translation is I obey. Um, you could even translate it as I pray to. Um, and the, the thing that I think is important there is that uh, native religions were oriented uh, around practice, around ritual, around doing things, around relationships, and not around a set of um, beliefs. Uh, I'm not saying that there was there was no uh, coherent uh, belief system. That's not what I'm saying at all. But um, uh, some sort of stable set of uh, of uh, beliefs was not the was not at the center of of native uh, religion. It was about practice. It was about relationships that one had and maintained with spiritual beings and with power. So uh, nitara mitawa is uh, a, a word that makes a lot more sense, right? Uh, they could have chosen some other um, uh, some other language um, that would have been closer to this, I believe. But I think that they made a strategic decision to recognize the importance of religious practice here um, in their translations. Well, yeah, I... It especially just strikes me about that decision to say, I obey, when I'm looking at, um, in the early 20th century, when there's both Catholics and Protestants in Korea, what strikes me is how the, the Protestants are really interested in making sure that their converts like believe everything, and they believe it correctly before they will baptize right. them. Whereas the Catholics, mostly, they want them to understand trouble, well, we'll go ahead and baptize you as long as you accept the authority of the church, and you'll eventually get it. Well, there's a similar thing. I mean, um, they certainly wanted to see evidence of a conversion, and they had very specific kind of markers for for seeing that. But um, uh, they were interested in in uh, behavior as much as as um, belief. I mean, I don't think they they thought that they could necessarily read what people uh, were actually thinking all the time. Right, exactly, exactly. So it, I thought that was really interesting. I really enjoyed this chapter. Thank you. So, so now, oh, you're welcome. Uh, so now you, we've got it set. We've got how they perceive each other. We've got how they are translating and being able to talk to each other. In the next chapter, you talk of when we're dealing more now with actual conversion. Yeah, and this is the chapter. The whole book is about conversion, but I have a chapter that I call Turnings. Um, spiritual transformations and the search for order, and that's where I elaborate a great deal on on um, how conversion worked for both native peoples and for the, the French Jesuits. And I call it turnings because of this. Um, if you look at the origins of the term conversion, of the the word conversion, um, it has relations to this to a concept of of, of a turning. Uh, or away from something, a reorientation. So I really like the way that that uh, works in this in this case. Um, that uh, um, it it fits better with this idea that uh, conversion is a practice or a process, um, and not um, uh, not just an identity or a state of being. Um, so I I spend a lot of time you know looking at various examples of, of, uh, of native conversion, um, of uh, 
I spend a lot of time talking about Claude Alloway because of his uh, private personal writing about his own spiritual experiences and conversion. And then I tell another story about how um, uh, one significant band of Ottawa's, the Kisukan Ottawa's, who had been um, uh, displaced and moving around quite a bit in the Great Lakes, um, seemed to, as part of a mass conversion, um, use the opportunity to try to restore a sense of order in their community. So I look at different you know, basically it's about um, the different kinds of experiences of, of, of spiritual transformation. Right. Um, yeah, and I thought that all came through really, really well. One thing I, I if I could ask you to is, could you give us a, a little bit more about the conversion of Joseph Nika, I'm sorry, Nika Lokita? Because I think it really yeah. gets a lot of your themes um, through that example. Yeah, jo- Nika Lokita is, you know, I was always interested. Uh, one of the things that I did was I went through the Jesuit relations and uh, for this whole period in, in the area I was looking at, and I tried to identify every conversion narrative that was embedded in these texts. I have more than 70 of them. Um, and then I um, uh, analyzed them all according to these different variables That's um, to bring some systematic analysis to these conversion narratives, and that's in an appendix. But one of the things, you know, a lot of them were uh, unnamed people. Uh, So I was always interested if someone was named in the documents, right, because um, uh, then they become less anonymous, right? Uh, So Joseph Nicolokita, a Meskwaki or Fox man, um, who uh, was very ill and um, uh, asks uh, for the intercession of a, of a missionary um, and uh, is healed um, and uh, believes that, uh, seems to believe that, um, you know, the Christian God has, um, has healed him and asks for um, uh, material objects and um, uh, prayers that he can use to, um, you know, develop his own spiritual life, and, and he tries to work with other people in his community. But that sometimes um, generates conflict. Right, right. And I thought that was really striking, and especially the, the theological explanations about it was kind of a, um, it was a win-win situation, right, if you were sick. Um, either you got well, and that was God healing you, or you died and you go, went to heaven. Yeah, I that for some people I think that was, you know, a possibility. It's hard to interpret honestly like um you know, so when I did okay, when I did the analysis of the conversion there is one of the things that comes clear and this will be a good transition to the next chapter actually. Uh, is that um men in this sample were more likely to um convert or to accept baptism when they were ill. Um, So it seemed to be, uh, you know, one could look at this and say that they were reaching out for a kind of spiritual power um, that might offer some healing. And this was not out of line at all with native tradition, you know, where you would call on a healer and see if the person could, um, you know, bring their power uh, to bear uh, in your life. Um, On the other hand, uh, women uh, seem to have a very different relationship to uh, Catholicism. So I saw a, a difference. Uh, there was, I guess, to summarize, um, a, a gendered uh, response uh, to Catholicism. Right, right. And that makes a, a lot of sense. That's one thing I... Um, so it, what was funny, in the Korean case, a lot of times it was actually attracted to Christianity uh, because it was in a explained through Confucianism, but later it shifted towards, towards women. And um, that, right, that's how we, then, like you said, this is a good tra- transition to the next chapter um, because it begins with this woman, um, Marie Ruvensa. Yes. Marie Ruvensa is, is an amazing um, person and she's pretty well known uh, historically. Uh, a lot of people have written about her in various ways. Um, 
Uh, and the reason for that is because we know who she is. We know her name. Um, she was part of an important family, and there's an unusual amount of documentation of her life uh, for a Native individual of that time, and especially of a Native woman. Um, and so if men were more likely to be interested in healing and in um, diplomatic or um, commercial relationships as part of their uh, connection to Christianity, um, a lot of women clearly were interested in expanding their social and perhaps spiritual power in these relationships. So Maria Wentz is my central example. Um, it's an amazing story. She, it's 1693. Um, she's a young woman, maybe 17 years old. Um, her father is the most important leader in her band of Illinois. And he arranges a marriage with a, a Frenchman named Michel Lacoe, who's a traitor. And she says no. And it had been most common in Illinois practice for uh, fathers and brothers to arrange the marriages of their daughters and sisters. So saying no was a really big deal. Um, and um, uh, she said no, and, and she was kicked out of her house and fled to uh, uh, some Christian households to, to get away from her parents. Um, eventually, she resolved the situation when she offered to get married to Michelle Lacoe if he would uh, return uh, to Catholicism as a practicing Catholic. And... Um, he agreed to do so. And then in the process, her parents uh, made a public uh, conversion uh, to Catholicism, and she became uh, one of the most important catechists in, uh, among the Kaskaskia, Illinois, her band. And they ended up being, uh, over time, from the 1690s all the way into the 18th century, the most um, closely uh, attached band um, to Catholicism. So she was a, a really significant person in the transformation of the community. Right. And I thought, um, I know this was an amazing story. This seems like a very remarkable woman. I mean, very strong willed. She was amazing. And, yeah, absolutely. And I thought um, what was really striking was how that even continued into her as she was dying and was, was, putting her will together. Yeah, I mean, one of the things that we have, uh, you know, like Joseph Nicolokito, we have, uh, you know, one main story about him. Uh, but Maria Wensa, we have lengthy accounts uh, by missionaries of her conversion of that conflict and of her um, spiritual practice. Uh, but we also have uh, her will. We have her estate inventory. Uh, she appears in the sacramental registers of the church, so we know that she was uh, she baptized her children. Uh, she served as a godmother uh, to other children, usually um, of Native women uh, married to French men. Uh, so we have a lot of documentation of her life, and um, she became independently. Uh, she got married, remarried again. Michelle Co died. She married another man, another French man. She became. Uh, one of the wealthiest people in the region. Um, she had uh, a, a lot of land, a lot of agricultural implements, houses and buildings. She owned um, Indian and African slaves um, and you know, became quite wealthy. So when she was dying, um, she, uh, you know, they did an estate inventory um, and she dictated her will um, uh, which we have, and as part of that, she said it, there are a couple of interesting things, but two of the things that demonstrate her continuing attachment to Christianity, this is 1725, she uh, converted, or the, the big conflict happened in 1693. Um, so it's decades later. Um, she, there are two really significant things. One, she asked to be buried under the pew of her church, which is a rare honor, and it's the only time I know of that this was given to a, a native woman. Um, and she disowns her oldest son, Michel Lacoe, who's named after her first husband, because he has left the settled French Indian community of Kaskaskia and has gone to uh, a, another community 
which is not Catholic. And she says that if he continues in his uh, behavior, that he will not receive his share of the inheritance. Then she goes back a few days later and dictates a codicil to her will, and she's softened her stance a little bit and says, look, if he comes back and behaves properly, then he can have his share. She dies. She's buried um, uh, uh, in the church under her pew, as she had requested. And eventually we know that um, uh, Michelle Aco, uh, Jr., uh, did receive his share of the inheritance, which was quite substantial. So he must have done something to satisfy uh, the people who were in charge of her estate. Right, this, and this is really interesting. It kind of reminded me of Chinese Catholicism uh, in because they usually would convert entire villages or form Catholic villages, right. and it was um, it was a big deal. Someone left the community. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, it's clear. I mean, you can. <laughs> it comes through in the document. The the will. She's very angry. She's very upset um, uh, by this, and and um, uh, that would have you know the. Not giving him his share of the estate was a very big deal. Oh, right. Yes, indeed. So that talks about the, the, the generations and families. In, in Chapter 8, the, um, the chapter that kind of wraps this all up, you, you shift a little bit broader to communities. Yeah, and there, I, that was a decision based. The, the sources start to get a little weaker as you get through into and through the, the 18th century. Um, so I really, as a historian, I had to broaden my view out to a, a wider uh, like view of communities. But it also helps me kind of wrap up the story um, with uh, the French leaving, um, uh, you know, at the end of the um, the Seven Years' War um, and the, the Jesuits. Actually, everything goes wrong for the Jesuits. You know, the French lose. Uh, the Seven Years' War, and are kicked out of North America, and um, then um, over a series of, of, of years, um, they're uh, disbanded as a religious order, you know, first in, in, like, Portugal and Spain, and then eventually by the Catholic Church itself. So the, the Jesuits are kind of destroyed as an entity. Um, and so I wanted to look at how Catholicism survived in these communities, um, with few missionaries um, and then eventually with no missionaries. And then I end the book with this kind of tantalizing hint, which is um, did the Jesuits have any lingering impact on the native peoples in that region? Um, and in 1803, the uh, a portion of the Illinois signed a treaty with the U S government that requests um uh, uh, and they, they're granted uh, money to pay for a Catholic priest. So I think that um, that provides at least some evidence that there was some ongoing um, connection to Catholicism, but it would have been very much their own. If they maintained that over the course of a generation, it would have been the responsibility of individuals and families and communities uh, without the presence of Jesuit uh, missionaries or Catholic priests. But there was something that um, you know continued that. Uh, connection. Right. Well, I thought it was also interesting because you, you, you talk about that connection. You also talk about this connection about how the, um, the missionaries and the native Catholics are both seeking to lose themselves. Yeah. Well, I think that goes back to the, this idea of, of Jesuit spirituality, which is, I, talk a lot about the abnegation of self, the emptying of the self. Um, and so, you know, suffering as part of the mission um, was not only expected, but it was um, desired, right? I mean, if you read some of the missionaries like Jacques Marquette, who is, you know, obviously a very well-known um, uh, missionary, and there's a university named after him and towns and rivers and things like that. But um, when he wrote several times to Rome saying, I want to be a missionary, send me out, right? This was something that he wanted. He wanted to, to suffer as part of the uh, of, 
of the mission. He wanted it to be hard. Right. And I, I just like there was just something about your, your phrasing when you talked about this that really um, got me and that I, I really found profitable, and especially in terms of my own research, and that the, they recognize that they're different, and that one group is French and one group is various types of Native American, but there, there's also, there is a shared spiritual goal. Even if they're understanding it in different ways, they are still going for the same kind of thing. Yeah, and this is, like, if I summarize the argument of the book, I mean, it's this, okay, that uh, conversion is a complex, uh, in this case, cross-cultural uh, process, right? Um, it represents a really complicated encounter of people, of communities, of ideas, of practices, um, and it was inherently ambiguous. I mean, no one could completely comprehend everything that was going on. It was not possible. But this ambiguity opened up uh, spaces for a lot of creativity, right? Um, creative responses on the part of missionaries, on the part of Native people. And that's where the Catholic Calumet comes from. That is an, a creative act. To take this uh, uh, Native uh, object, which is incredibly important and had been incredibly important in ritual dating back centuries, maybe thousands of years, right? These uh, ceremonial pipes. And to deliver it as a uh, signifier of attachment to Catholicism, that represented um, a, a creative act that emerged out of this kind of ambiguous atmosphere of exchange and of trying to learn about the other, trying to understand and even control uh, what was happening to people in the area. Right. Well, I think that that really is is well stated and it really comes through very clearly in your book. And I, I really would recommend our listeners to, to pick up a copy. Well, thank you very, very much. Oh, my pleasure. And well, um, we've taken up a lot of your time, but if I could take up a little bit more and ask you our traditional um, question to end an interview at New Books Network. So what's on now? Well, I it might at first it might sound unrelated but there is a relationship i'm have shifted my attention to the 19th century pacific and i've been spending a lot of time in hawaii which i admit is not a bad it's not a bad thing uh hawaii right. is a very nice place to do research but um i'm writing about um science religion and empire in the pacific uh by looking at um uh, American Protestant missionaries, in this case, uh, mostly from New England, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions, who set up missions in Hawaii and the and the Pacific, um, and I am looking at how um, uh, uh, the the scientific enterprise and and the evangelical enterprise kind of came together. Um, to bring uh, the Pacific into the American imagination and eventually uh, uh, make it part of, of um, a, a kind of, it becomes part of American imperial activity in the Pacific. Well, that sounds fascinating. I, I definitely, uh, I study 19th century empire in the Pacific. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a little more on the, the continent of Asia, but that, that sounds really interesting. Hopefully, as you progress and you publish, we'll be able to have you again. Well, I would, I would really enjoy that. I hope to have the first, I've done a lot of research and I'm starting to write the first uh, pieces and I, I hope to get some things out in the next year or so. Oh, good deal. Well, thank you so much again for your time. Um, thank you for having me. It was, uh, it was really fun to talk about this. Oh, it was my pleasure. Well, thank you again and have a good day. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you very much uh, for listening to this interview of the Christian Studies channel of the New Books Network. Uh, have a great day and hope to hear from you again.